welcome to our Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast brought to you by Bruker Nano Analytics. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast regularly. My name is Cody Morton. I'm a marketing communications specialist at Bruker Nano Analytics and an information enthusiast. If you like to learn from specialists in their field and hear what technologies are solving their problems, you will enjoy this podcast. Every session, we will focus on a different problem that our colleagues face in the lab and in the field. Some of the solutions will be a variation of ideas you may have heard before or even worked with. We will bring you these topics in a new and interesting way and introduce you to updated and thought-provoking results. We will talk about how the problem was dealt with in the past and what we're doing to solve the problem now and perhaps even envision future solutions. Join us as we talk solutions with a variety of scientists and technicians in many different industries in the Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast. According to worldsteel.org, the birth of steel can be traced back to 13th century BCE. The invention of steel brought iron and charcoal together because early blacksmiths discovered that iron became harder and stronger when left in charcoal furnaces. By the third century AD, China was manufacturing high quality steel, likely having something similar to the Bessemer process that wouldn't be officially invented in Europe until the 19th century. In the 11th century, Damascus steel was a term used in Western culture from the medieval period onward to describe a type of steel created in India and would be developed and used in sword making. Jump ahead to the 18th century with the introduction of the crucible steel technique. All along the way, manufacturers have been working to perfect their process and to make a product that is strong, durable, and can withstand anything that industry can do to it. Testing has taken many directions, and scientists are always seeking ways to determine the soundness of the product. Scholars at the University of California wrote about a technique created by none other than Leonardo da Vinci to test the tensile strength of the wire with a suspended basket and slow-pouring sand. When the wire broke, the basket clamped shut, and the experiment was reproduced with smaller and smaller wire to determine the ultimate strength and location of the fracture. While industry is creating stronger steel for more applications, the testing of this product must keep up. Today, we are joined by Jeff West with the University of Warwick WMG department to discuss how he and his students are testing steel in their lab. Thank you to my guest host, Tina Hill with Bruker Nano Analytics and welcome Jeff. Great, thanks Cody. I am Tina Hill. I'm actually a geologist and an application scientist for the M4 Tornado with Bruker. And we deal with a lot of different topics, different ideas. And today we're talking about Lowy mapping or Bragg mapping. And it will be a very interesting talk about some real applications. Jeff, would you mind introducing yourself? Jeff is a user of our M4 and has some real field experience, we'll say. Yeah, hi Tina. My name's Jeff West. I'm from Warwick University WMG department, and my role looks at um, I'm responsible for electron microscopy at WMG. One of the things that we've tried to put together is a kind of a full analytical workflow, which allows us to go from the macro levels where we're looking at many centimeters, all the way down to the um, nanometer level TEM analysis. 
And we see the, the book M4 Tornado as a very important tool for the, the large scale chemical mapping of our samples. Thanks. And how long have you had your M4? So we, we got our M4 installed January 2018. Okay. So it's um, just over three and a half years. Great. So you're probably familiar with my applications colleagues in Berlin, mostly, I guess. Yeah. So when, before we bought the system, we actually went to Berlin for a couple of days and we were very impressed with the, the knowledge of people like Wold. He was obviously very, very knowledgeable about the system. Yep. We didn't actually go there to look at XRF. We went there to look at micro, microscopy accessories, but we were blown away with the capability of the XRF and we could see some real applications for it in the, in the kind of things that we were doing. So that actually became one of our priority systems based on that trip to Berlin. And that's actually when we first understood about the black diffraction. I was just going to ask when you first saw it. Because um, when one of the samples we ran, which is one of the EPRI samples that they still show up, we still see the data from that demo all the time that you guys yes. show. We, we noticed that there's very good Bragg diffraction in that. And although during the demo, they were talking about it as a purely artifact, it was clear that, yes, we wanted it out of the chemical distribution maps, but that information itself is, is, is very valuable as well. So they actually showed you when you went and did the demo. So, so early yeah. on. Yeah. So we, I mean, I think Roald was talking about how this, I think he was generating ideas and how you guys could use it for a positive purpose rather than just as a nuisance. And this was probably five, six years ago. Yes. It, it takes a time to get the money to get these systems. <laughs> it does, especially for universities, academic world. Yeah. So actually TAP, Lola at EPRI gave me your name and that's, that's why we're chatting today. I had come across his, you know, the data that you mentioned and wanted to talk to him about it. And he said, Oh, oh, yeah. You know what? I think you should talk to my friend, Jeff. He's going to know a little bit more about it. So I've worked with the guys at Epri for about 10 years. Um, TAP obviously hasn't been there quite that long, but they, the systems that we like and are systems that we're generating good results for, for them, we would like to be able to do that ourselves. And when, when, they, were, when they sort of said, look, we, we've seen the stuff we've been doing with DMWs, we want to be able to do that ourselves, I recommended they went for the tornado plus for them and that i mean i know it has a lot of advantages but for steels i don't think the light elements does very much i don't think the, the improved optics where you can look at bigger depths of field is particularly important the, the biggest thing for the steels is the faster eds processing power because I, th I think that the, the the electronics you've put in there are, are just way first, faster than the previous one and yes. that's what you want when you're doing steels you want it to be fast you, you don't really care about the size of the window because you're not you never you're never worried about counts anyway you're always having to tune the current down and right. i said look the thing you need is you need the speed of their electronics and so I, th I think that they're very happy with the system they've got great jeff we want to also know what is the problem you're solving with this technology yeah so um, we'll take a step back. What do we use the XRF for on steels? Mainly we look, we use it for to um, quantify, be able to locally quantify chemistry of big components. Okay, so we can look at um, which bits have the positive and negative segregation. On a casting, that's quite predictable. We know roughly where it is. But then as it goes through the, the processing, 
and then we look at X service components, it can become a lot more complex variation in compositions. What the diffraction gives us on top of that is it gives us the, the relationship between the chemistry and the crystallography of the material. And that gives us a, a very powerful mix. And we, we always see the XRF as the first portal. We get the overview of what we're looking at. You imagine you're looking at, I mean, you look at the stuff Epi look at. You're talking about, they have tons of material. Do we really want to look at five microns in a TM? Do we really want to look at a millimeter in an SEM? No, we want to look all the way through cross-section of their component. Which bit do we look at in more detail? Okay, and that first sweep gives us the overview of the material, often allows us to pick out things. We had a sample from EPRI last month. They sent us a sample. We stuck it in the XUF like we always do. And we're like, holy moly, what's all that massive niobium band down the middle? That doesn't look good. Wow. We'll have a look at that in the SEM. If we'd looked it straight in the SEM, we wouldn't have seen that. No chance of us picking that out. It, let, it lets you see where to look and where the potential problems are right from the start. And you, I know that you can do EDS mapping in the SEM. And you guys sell that product as well. But you try and do an EDS map and an SEM that rivals XRF, no chance. Speed, sample, prep, everything. You just, you just can't do it. I mean, we, we talked about this earlier, that people don't like the fact that you've got an interaction volume of five microns and that your spatial resolution isn't very good. But in terms of being able to map big things, these are real advantages. You're not getting bogged down. You're getting the average of a reasonable amount of material. It provides the extra sensitivity, provides a lot more power in terms of where you're going. Well, and I think that particular EPRI map that we keep talking about, in my understanding, when you're looking at the weld, it looks as if there are larger crystals in the inner of the weld and then smaller at the edge. And my understanding is that's about cooling times. Did that end up being important in thinking about how quickly that cooled, therefore failure or something different? Yeah. So we, we've done a lot of EBSD mapping across the heat affected zone in the well. Mm. That, that gives us obviously the more quantitative data on that. I think the thing is, is that, yeah, it, it does look really nice. But if you look at along the weld interface, the grain size change is quite, it's quite uniform down. Okay. So it's quite easy to kind of map across with EBSD to actually be able to quantify all that. So it, it, it looks nice, but it's, it, you don't get the same amount of understanding as you would do out of these um, casted things where you, you don't know what the hell the grain structure is going to look like in a right. really enormous part. As a whole, yeah. Yeah. And the other problem with these welded things is the brag diffraction can be a bit misleading in a way because the grain structure of steels, the orientation you get depends on the phase that's there. You can get different types of steels with different grain contrasts. We, we like to do that with EBSD, but you're right, it does, it does look great. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I guess coming in after all of that was done and sort of seeing the data, I just, I was thinking that it, it was an area of actual failure. Is that the case? Yeah, they so were... these, wells all, these wells always fail in the 
normally fail in the heat affected zone of the world. Ah, okay. It, it's quite um, normal. So being able to see all of that is definitely an added bonus. Yeah, I, I think that that's means that Epic could do more because I think that they all they use their tornado for at the moment is looking for the comp. The, they, they're not really interested in segregation like we are. Mm-hmm. So they don't really care if they've got loads of diffraction artifacts in their maps. They can see what the composition of that weld bead is different to that one. They more do it from that perspective. Hmm. Do you think that they find differences based on grain size on the composition? I would think that would affect it a little bit. If they're looking only for composition, but yet they have a huge variation in grain size. Yeah, so they get, so if you look at their maps, they have the diff- Bragg diffraction superimposed on this, on this, on there. So they can account for that. But it, it doesn't really affect quantification so much. It just, on the visuals, it, it just doesn't look so good. I suppose if you were looking for really, really precise and accurate numbers, that that might be more of a, an issue. Yeah. But since yeah. they're not, no worries there. That, that was a good summation. I may have missed it at the beginning, but was the micro XRF M4 Tornado purchased for this particular use of working with steel, or was it thought as uh, this was a technology that would also work for steel? So the, the background to us getting the tornado was I joined WMG in September 2015. And at my previous university, we'd just bought um, an XOF system. And we didn't actually buy the tornado, we bought a competitor system. That wasn't just because we thought the XOF booker was better, but the competitor packaged their XOF into a bigger package. And when I came to here, I was like, we, we should get an XOF because we've got the Advanced Steel Research Center, you're casting stuff, and you're interested in, the, in looking at the castings that we're producing. And it didn't take long for us to get some money from XOF. And I did, wasn't actually involved in the evaluation this time because I'd already been to the evaluation and I knew that the Booker one was best, even though we didn't get it last time. So I let, I let some of my guys go and have a look. And they came back and said, we think the Booker one's best. We should go for that. So we did. So yeah, it was bought primarily for looking at steel materials, although we do look at other stuff as well. And I think that I'm not aware of anybody else apart from us now for using it for steels. I, I don't know whether, whether you know anybody else. We and have, that, that surprises me because it's so powerful for steels. So um, US Steel does have one here in the States. Okay. Well, one of the things I've noticed about FP operator systems, and um, that, and and I guess it's how we were told to operate them as well, is that there's a reluctance to use filters when you're scanning. However, when you're looking for segregation effects in steel, if you've got diffraction peaks in there, and these segregation variations are very small, we we have to use the filters to get them out because otherwise you've just got a layer of artifacts you don't understand on top of the maps. So one of the key things, one of the key things I've been telling them is, look, guys, you've, you've got to use the filters to, for these distribution maps on steels. I know that perhaps it's not so good for the lighter element quantifications, but you've, got to, you've just got to take a hit on what you want to on what you need. Right. So I've been very kind of vocal in, in the use of filters, 
even though that that does kill kind of the topic a little bit about what we're about what we're talking about today. Yeah, but don't you think it's you really have to figure out the best way, the compromise to get out the kind of information that you want. So if you want to do brag diffraction, then you operate a certain way. Yeah, so we're starting to do that. We're starting to do double ones, which is unfortunate. But we, we yeah. so we get some big castings. People want to know the, the chemical distribution and the grain structure. And we <laughs> haven't figured out a way in which we can bring these two very divergent worlds together sure. you know, in, a, in an appropriate way. So we're, we started to do double runs where we, we, we do it with the filters to get rid of all the brag. And then we do it without the filters to improve the light element performance and get the strong, strong brag caps as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, I, I do have a suggestion for you, but I don't want to talk about it just yet. Because okay, so that's why I'm do this because <laughs> Tina's probably gonna gonna improve my world on, on this. We can only hope. So, so the sample that you worked on with Tap that was the first time you had thought about how to use this, and then did you come up with a project like right on the spot there, or did you have to marinate a little bit? So um, they send us a lot of samples and we have quite a lot of projects with them. Um, but they, they, they ask questions like, what's the composition of the weld metal? And mm-hmm. if you've seen that um, demo sample, the composition of the weld metal depends on where you look. Okay. And one of the things is, is that you often get asked, what is the composition or how accurate is that? And it doesn't matter how accurate your analysis is if the variation across your sample is massive, because right. getting a very accurate measurement in one location is meaningless <laughs> if, the, if the whole part has a very varied range of composition. And that's the one thing we try and tell people, you know, yeah, it, it's not always the average composition that's important, it is what is the extremes of composition. And that's what the XRF tells us. Parts never fail due to an average property. They <laughs> fail because of an extreme. A compositional extreme is very important. And so we, we use the XOF a lot to locate the extreme locations in the sample. And they're the locations that we analyze in more detail. So that's interesting the way you say that, the extremes there. So did you run the sample a number of different ways to try and pinpoint those extremes? And then... No, so, so we just run it in the XRF. Once we've got that data, we know where the, the positively segregated areas are and the negatively segregated areas are. I mean, before we got the XRF, we used to assume these materials are homogeneous. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen since then, and we... We did a paper on this earlier this year, is that where you, where you analyze is, is really important. If, you analyze, if you're just analyzing random locations, you can get big scattering results, and that scatter is due to the compositional variation. So if, you, if you're smart about where you analyze, you can get rid of the scatter, and then you can look at what, the, what, what these properties are in a positively segregated area and the negatively segregated area. Yeah. So it's not just being able to measure the max and min composition. We can then take it further and measure the 
other things like the density of second phase particles, which is related to the composition. Well, and that particular weld that we're talking about is a pretty stunning example of being able to see, like you said, the variation in composition, but then the Bragg maps are stunning. They're really fantastic. So that must have been a really interesting clue to you to see that and be able to. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think it. the Bragg maps we got out of that really opened our eyes for the power of Bragg for these, these materials. I think for the, the DMW samples, um, like the Epi ones, the value in them is not quite so big because we know what the grain structure is going to look like. Mm. But when we're looking at castings um, and other components, they, there's a real interest in where, you know, how does the, the segregation relate to how these grains have grown in the cast state? And we do a lot of work with Tata Steel, which is one of the biggest suppliers in, in Europe, Steels. And they're co-located here at, at Warwick with us. And um, they, they ask us, look, we, we, want you to, we want you to show the grain structure on this massive, great five kilogram steel block. And we want to know the segregation in there as well. And we've tried etching it. And, but how do you etch a five kilogram block <laughs> and then image it? How, how, how do you do that? It's, right. it's so much easier just to stick it on the X or F and do a, do, do a map. Yes, definitely. So I'm curious to know, when you, when you did look at those castings, did you see, and I, I'm not an expert in steels, so you know, forgive the question if it's a little basic, but the segregations that you saw in those, are the grain sizes much different than, say, looking at the EPRI samples? So in a, in a cast structure, you get different grain morphologies in different parts of the casting. Ah. It's about relating these different morphologies to where the segregation is occurring. And that's what is really important to understand. So knowing, let's say, grain size in those different regions? Yeah, grain size and shape. And shape. And because you get the elongated grains as well. So it's very useful for us to be able to relate those two things. And what does that tell you overall? Let's say, are you looking for less homogeneity or less inhomogeneity or more for something like the casting? So as, in, as a general rule, steel manufacturers like things to be homogeneous. Homogeneous. <laughs> um, but I think it's make, make more a case of understanding it because things don't stay cast forever. Once they've cast it, then they do their, their forming processes. But it's important to understand what it looked like in the as-formed condition. And then you can see how that compositional variation changes during the processing. So after you did some characterization for them, how did they use that information? Was, were they able to kind of pinpoint maybe some areas that they wanted to get much better feel for? Or So um, the project we're doing with Tata is still quite early days, but we're using the XOF to basically, at the moment, pinpoint areas for, for more detailed study. For other techniques. For other techniques. And, that, and that's one of the things is the XRF tells us where to look. Instead of, you know, needling a haystack, we know this is the, 
this this area has this grain structure and has this composition. Right. You know, okay. Instead of oh, this looks a, you've got the the helicopter view of, of what's going on. Well, and I think that that idea really resonates in pretty much any industry that the M4 uses because it is such a quick way to take a look at something like that so that you can delve in deeper. I mean, geology, of course, comes to mind with their cores. You want to do the same thing where you want to see the inhomogeneity and identify those places that you want to look at a little closer so that you can either figure out if it's where you want to be or where you don't want to be. I'm actually very surprised at the small number of these systems in steel research centers. Do you think it's just a matter that people haven't really thought about it before? Um, I think I think it's well, my my personal view is that the reason why there's so few of them is because if you look at the specifications on an XOF, they look terrible because you've got a spatial resolution of 25 microns that doesn't excite people. Um, they're thinking what well, in their minds, you know, they're thinking that spatial resolution doesn't work. They don't realize that you need that higher spatial resolution is not always good. Right. Right. Okay. But, and I think that mentally that people struggle with that concept. And I think when they, when they look, what, why, why am I buying a system with such poor spatial resolution? I think that that's a very hard thing for them to understand. Well, I think um, especially they, people get into a mode. This is how we analyze it. This is the information that we get out. And it's really difficult to look at something like Bragg diffraction and say, wow, I think we could really use this to our benefit and change the way they do something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I just see Bragg diffraction as just a, you wouldn't buy the system for Bragg diffraction. Right. But it's just a nice little complementary technique where you can get the chemistry. It's like combined EBS to EDS, you know, you've got both. You've got the chemical and crystallographic information all in one hit. Right. And I think that that's very powerful. I, I, I genuinely believe people don't look at these systems because they think spatial resolution is terrible and it's basically an EDS-based system. They yeah. don't understand that the sensitivity is so much better. Yeah, that's an interesting point of view, actually. I hadn't really thought about it like that. How do, you, do you use diffraction, like XRD, on these types of samples? Have you, did you do that before? So XRD doesn't really do much for us because we know what phase it is. Sure. So we, we, we've got very good XRD facilities here at Warwick. We've got a few Booker systems, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, we don't tend to do much on these steel samples because we know what the phase structure is. And the second phase structure is a volume percent that XRD is not good with. Sure. That makes sense. So what are the samples that you're working on now that you mentioned to me? We use any sample we get from FPRI, we always stick in the XRF. And just, <laughs> it's just so that it's just our routine because mm -hmm. we know that the stuff they give us is normally quite high alloy materials. And so there's going to be segregation effects. So any sample that we know is quite a high alloy, we will, routine, we will just stick in XRF just to check it out. Does that flag anything up? So we use it as a first port of call for a lot of samples that come in. We do quite a lot of external work on the system. Mm -hmm. So places like Manchester University, I don't know whether you're aware of Manchester, they're 
They've got the biggest materials department in the country in, in the UK, and they have every system known to man, but they don't have an XLF system, <laughs> probably for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Sure. Um, we, we do a lot of XLF for them, and we do XLF on the castings that we produce in-house as well. And so are you looking to figure out how to do composition and diffraction at the same time for everything that you're doing? I mean, all of these things that you produce and the others that come in. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we always see that in any situation, we see that the black diffraction, if it's not in the maps we wanted to be in as a, as a benefit, if we can get a map that shows the grain structure alongside. There's never a disadvantage to having more information sure. as long as it doesn't intrude in the information that we want. Right. Well, I'm curious to know because the Bragg peaks can show up um, consistently, somewhat consistently based on the types of materials that you have. I'm guessing that since you, you know the phases, you know what you're looking at a lot, maybe you see some consistent locations of Bragg peaks, but what do the spectra look like? Is it always just kind of a crapshoot for you, or are you looking for some very specific ones every time? So I, I think the problem we, what one of the problems we have, is that in a lot of the steels that we look at, elements that we're interested in, things like niobium, molybdenum, so quite heavy elements, mm -hmm. which are in the range where diffraction peaks are quite likely to be present. Sure. Okay. So uh, you said before that your, your metallurgy isn't perfect. Things like niobium and molybdenum are the biggest segregators. You know, they're, they're heavy, they're big, they're immobile. So they're the ones in a lot of steels that we're particularly interested in because they're easy for us to spot and they're, they're very important for the understanding of the segregation cave of these steels. So consequently, we don't want any diffraction to kind of interrupt our interpretation of these ones. Right. So we tend to use quite thick filters to ensure that, that and we still get a, a decent rhodium signal on a lot of samples, and that often gives us some diffraction. But if, if we take away the filter and run it, we, our brag looks way better. There's no question about that. And you we were looking at some samples last week for a company in the UK. And for some reason, I don't fully understand it, but the, the rhodium signal was not very good. But copper, we got unbelievable diffraction contrast in the copper peak. It seemed to move depending, because we were looking at a different composition of alloy. I, I guess that's quite normal, is it? The Bragg peaks moving because of different composition? Yeah. Well, I would think that the crystals would be slightly different, slightly different angles, different um, locations, different sizes based on the composition. Is that? I, I always, I mean, mo most materials we look at, the rhodium fraction is like, is always the best one. But for some reason, these oh, strange see. alloys that I was sent, copper one was, was really. really it's, it's the other thing that I, I, I haven't fully got my head around. Is one of the selling points for XRF is that sample preparation doesn't need to be great. Mm -hmm. Okay. And obviously, I think people often take that too literally. Yeah. <laughs> because for steel, we always see that the interaction volume is something between five and 10 microns, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you want nice brag diffraction, if your sample has got a pile of cold work in the surface, 
you know, loads of defamation. You, I can't see how you're going to get good, good rag diffraction because you're not going to have a clear grain structure there. So um, we tend to prepare our samples, even the big blocks. Yeah, we wouldn't want to stick it in a microscope and do EBSD on it, but we try and prepare it. We, we don't just grind it and then stick it in. We try and get the, the preparation to be a, as good as we can in a reasonable time period, just so that we're not, we haven't got a smearing effect and that we are giving ourselves a chance with the Bragg But the, the quality of the Bragg diffraction we get does seem to be variable. And we don't understand fully what, might, what we need to do to make, we, we understand that sample preparation probably needs to be reasonable. Where we get some samples where we get really nice Bragg diffraction, even with filters. Mm-hmm. And then we put a sample in that we think is very similar, prepared very similar, and we, we just don't get it. So we, we, there is some variability with it that we just don't understand. So I, I was very keen to hear any, any kind of recommendations you had in terms of how, to, how, how you would collect data with that didn't have the Bragg in the maps that you wanted to show the variation. But did allow you to see the grain structure. Yeah. So first, I am I am very interested in the idea of figuring out how to maximize that that property. And it's not something that I've done a lot of work on, but I am really curious because I think understanding how you end up with these based on what you the sample you have and the preparation that you have affects that. That could really be something that makes life a little bit easier for a lot of people. Um, it would be an interesting study to see what kind of samples would be best. I mean, obviously we know larger crystals are probably going to diffract better. Yeah, that's that's probably a big one. And I suppose the composition for sure would, would make that. But I don't know how you would figure out, there's probably a way to figure out the likelihood of what you have diffracting. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll think about that a little bit. One other question that I had was some scientists, Jeff, maybe one of these types of people have run samples in the micro XRF just for fun, just for, hey, I wonder what this looks like. Have you run any samples that you were surprised other than steel? Have you run any samples to just see what the technology will do that have uh, given you any surprises or interesting results? I'm not sure. Look at, we do look at other bio samples with staining. We've, we've looked at WMG. We have a um, big SME team. This is a team that looks after small and medium enterprises. Basically, the idea is it, it makes the small guys, helps them become better. And they use the XRF a lot on a lot of samples that their customers have. Um, but because I don't have so much background on what the hell we're putting in, I don't really get that surprised by what comes out. You know <laughs> what I mean? I don't really have the, they don't tell me enough about the samples to surprise me. We have looked at um, superalloy samples and they're, they're always really interesting to look at because superalloy is a really interesting mix of different elements. And one of the advantages of the, the XRF being 50 kV is that it's so much easier to work out the composition of these things because you can look at all the higher energy lines. And I never realized just how 
heterogeneous these things were until we started looking at the XOF. Yeah. And yeah, I, th I think that kind of really opened my eyes that look, when we analyze these samples in the SEM, we just need to be a bit more careful where we're looking. Do you use standards at all? Because a lot of people say the same. They, everyone assumes that most standards are very homogeneous. But when you start looking at them in the XRF, sometimes you find that they're not. So we, we have, so FP have given us a standard. And one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to improve. So the XRF quants that we get are good, but they can be better. Mm -hmm. So we get different results depending on what filters we use. Yep. Um, certain elements underestimate reproducibly depending on what filters and stuff we use. Right. Um, and so we're trying to figure out a way in which we can account for that. I'm sure that I could come up with a million more questions, but. Um... Well, I just wanted to have a quick follow up question. If someone is interested in finding out more about steel analysis with micro XRF, Tina, I believe we have a abstract available that people can we can point to online in our show notes. Is there anything, Jeff, that you have uh, released or published or know about that talks about this topic as well? We, we recently published a paper about the effect of segregation on nine chrome steels, similar to EPRI. So it's published with your guys EPRI. And in this paper, we show XOF results. I can, I can send you this paper if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be great. Or a link Is this to one? it. Is this the one that was fairly recently published? It might be the one that I um, helped tap with. No, so that one was all about some case studies with an Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, this, this is separate. <clears throat> so the, the, the results in this one are, so basically we've looked at a forging and we've looked at a pipe. And in the, in the forging, you've got these clouds of segregation, which you can see very clearly in the XLF. And in the pipe, you've got these um, stripes and what is actually my PhD student, he's quantified the second phase particles in a cloud and away from a cloud. And he's shown that the, the numbers he gets are completely different. And what he's shown is if you just randomly collect the images, you get a nice big scatter. And if you collect from a negative and then a positive one, you get the extremes of the scatter. So that the scatter doesn't have to be there if you think about where you collect in terms of composition. And we, we did that on the easiest particle is to measure. What we're doing now is we're trying to do this on more complicated things like inclusions and things like that. Where, where is that paper? Where I'll send it to you. Oh, thank you. Is it available online at all or is it just? It is. It is. And if I send it to you, then you can try and look online as well if you want. Thank you so much, Jeff. We really yes. appreciate your time. Thank you to our speakers today. If you would like more information about today's topic or to submit a topic idea, please email info.bna at You can also check out more information in today's show notes. Join us next time as we look at a new solution with more scientists and technicians in all sorts of industries.